If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Psalm 4. As you're turning there, I'm going to turn to a totally different passage of Scripture, just to make it more interesting. When a citizen of Athens was asked why he had voted for the condemnation of Aristides, which I'm sure all of you know who he is, super famous. I didn't think so. Aristides was called the just. In fact, he was one of the most outstanding statesmen that the nation of Athens had ever produced. When asked why this citizen voted in condemnation of him, the citizen replied, I voted against him simply because I was just tired of hearing him being called the just. There are times when we are slandered for no reason. There are times when people seem to take a stand against us and there's just no cause for them to do that. They malign us, they say things that, that, that aren't true, or they believe things that have been said about us that aren't true, and so we feel like people are kind of attacking us at a reputational level. Last week we looked at Psalm 3, we looked at that being a mourning psalm, um, and we talked about the fact that David was physically attacked, he was physically threatened, his life was actually in danger, and how did he respond when he was facing possible injury or death. This particular psalm is a psalm of David where we see that David is being attacked in his reputation. When I was reading this particular psalm and, we, and I was kind of pouring over the fact that David was experiencing slander and that his reputation was being maligned and how he was responding to that, the first thing I thought of was Paul in Philippians chapter 1. And I I've encouraged you to turn to Psalm 4. I want to start with this couple of verses because I want you to see what Paul's facing here. And, and in fact, these people were even seemingly doing things right for the purpose of maligning him, which just seems amazing to me. But this is what Paul says in Philippians 1, 15, 16, and 17. He says, to be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Still boggles my mind how somebody could actually preach the gospel in, a, in an envious or rivalry way. But Paul says there are some that are preaching the gospel in that particular capacity. He says in verse 16, these preach out of love, talking about the ones that do it out of goodwill, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. But then in verse 17 he says, but others preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. Again, that just boggles my mind. It seems to be so antithetical to the gospel. But anyway, they pre proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. So Paul's saying, look, these people seemingly are doing the right thing, but they're, they're doing it to malign me. They're, they're, they're doing it thinking that they're going to make my life more miserable. What I find interesting is Paul's response to this situation where his name is being defamed, that his reputation is being maligned, is very much the same way that David responds in Psalm 4. And so in Psalm 4, um, we're going to read Psalm 4. It really breaks down the three main points, really go along with really the three main stanzas of the psalm. We're going to talk about Paul's appeal to God, or uh, David's appeal to God, 
in light of what he's going through. He's, he in stands in number two. We're going to look at David's appeal to his enemies. So he actually appeals to his enemies in the midst of all of this. And then lastly, it's David's trust in God in spite of all that's going on. And so this is where we're going to be looking at. David's reputation is being maligned, and so he turns to God. And it's interesting that his response and Paul's response, they're very, very similar, I find, um, in the way that they approach the situations that they've been a part of. Now, we know, because we were, we were raised, maybe some of us younger here maybe have not heard this statement, but I think you probably have. We've heard the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, right? And I, I, as a parent, I've said that to my kids. My parents said that to me. It is definitely true that sticks and bones can physically hurt us. But if we're honest, names will never hurt me. That's actually not true. I mean, when people say things nasty towards us, it does hurt, right? It it does hurt us. Um, I think that we as parents, as a general rule, say that to our kids because we want our kids to be resilient. We want them to understand that just because people call you names doesn't mean that it's true, doesn't mean that they need to let that crush them and demoralize them and so on. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. When somebody says something about you that's just not fair or not true, not, not even right, not even honest, sometimes that actually is hurtful. And so David, when he's being criticized and maligned and his reputation is being torn down, this is how he responds. So let's just look at it. In the first stanza, the first couple verses, actually it's just the first verse, we see his appeal to God. He says this, Answer me when I call God who vindicates me. In your translation, it might be God of my righteousness that he says. He's appealing to God, the God of his righteousness You freed me from my affliction. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. First thing that I want us to see right off the bat is in in David's appeal to God, he is both honest with God and he's also balanced with God. What I, I find quite comforting is how he approaches God. Now, I'm sure that part of his honesty with God has to do with the fact that David knows who God is. He has a good understanding of of the character of God, the characteristics of God. He knows that he's approaching one who knows all things. So there's no use trying to pull a fast one on God. If we're not honest with God, God knows the, the real deal anyway. So it doesn't matter about not being honest with God. But David is honest with God. He calls out to him. He says, answer me when I call God who vindicates me or the God of my righteousness. God, he knows that God will come through for him, that God will go to bat for him. He knows that God will at some point vindicate him. That doesn't mean that God's going to swoop down and he's going to, you know, on a placard, you know, correct these individuals. He, he knows that God's not necessarily going to come down and actually physically, you know, assault his enemies to vindicate him. What, what David does know is that the adage, truth and time go hand in hand, I think David understands that at some point it will be revealed that David was right and honest and true in this. That at some point his reputation, which is currently being maligned, 
that at some point people will realize that what was being said about David was actually not true and not accurate. That at some point the truth would come out. He's honest with God. He cries out, letting God know that he's struggling because of the fact that his reputation is being destroyed by a group of people. But he's also balanced with his appeal to God. Because if you look at the very first verse, he says, Answer me when I call God who vindicates me. You freed me from affliction. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. David realizes that though in this particular instance he may be innocent of what's being accused of him, and that is true. There are times when we are being accused of something that we didn't do that in that instance we can say, look, I'm innocent. I didn't say these things that people are saying I said, or I didn't do what these people are claiming that I did. But David also understands that he's not a com completely innocent man. He's not appealing to God, saying, God, vindicate me because I'm holy and, and just and I always do the right thing, God, and these people are so mean to me. David knows that he needs God's grace as much as anybody else. That he's not a perfect man. That he knows that on any given day, somebody could say something about him and it'd be absolutely true. There's no historical context to this psalm, so we don't know for sure when this psalm takes place. Some try to say that it's connected to the previous psalm, which is the instance where Absalom is trying to take over the throne of, from David. There's no indication of that in the psalm. There's no indication in the, kind of the historical documents surrounding the psalms to ever give us that indication. At this point, we would have to let this kind of stand on its own that there's just a point in David's life where people have been maligning him and tearing down his reputation and he's appealing to God. And it's very possible that David writes this psalm at a point after his sin with Bathsheba. And if you think about his sin with Bathsheba, David literally committed adultery with this woman who was married to another man, a man in David's army. Then he proceeds to have this man killed on the front line so that he could take this man's wife to be his wife. So he's guilty of murder. He's guilty of adultery. He's guilty of lust. He's guilty of lying. He's guilty of all sorts of things. Deceit, he's guilty of all sorts of things. It's brought to his attention as sin he confesses that sin before God. There's lasting consequences because of that sin, and David knows it. And so David could be writing this psalm sometime after that, and, and he knows full well that there are times when people could completely and rightfully say, man, this guy is, he's a sinful man. He's an adulterer, he's a murderer, he's a liar. And David could say, guilty, guilty as charged. So David is honest enough and balanced enough to realize that he's not a completely innocent man. But in this particular instance, those that are trying to attack his reputation here at this point, he's appealing to the Lord saying, Lord, in this instance, I, I'm innocent of what they're accusing me but I need you to be gracious to me because I know that I'm not completely innocent. And so he's balanced in his appeal to God. He's also honest in his appeal to God. 
He's honest enough to struggle with how long this is going to go on. When he reaches out and, and cries out to God, like many other instances in Scripture, I think of, of Habakkuk, for instance, as Habakkuk looks at the injustice around him and how the evil nations are just seemingly prospering and the children of Israel are not and they're being uh, 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 afflicted by these enemies of theirs. And Habakkuk yells out or cries out to the Lord, How long, God, are you going to let this injustice take place? How long are you going to let this happen? So David's not the only one that's ever cried out to the Lord and said, How long is this? do I have to put up with this? Maybe many of us in this room have dealt with something in our lives where we've honestly cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, how long do I have to put up with this? How long do I have to endure this? And David honestly cries out to the Lord. That's his appeal to God. But secondly, he appeals to his enemies. And this is where I really think that we see the heart, the godly heart of David. Very much on par with the way that Paul treats those that were trying to preach out of envy to make things worse for him. You see David's appeal to his enemies. He says, how long exalted ones... Now, in your translation, it may say, how long sons of men. I'll explain in a second why I believe that exalted ones is actually a better translation. It's not just because it's the translation I'm reading from. But he says, how long exalted ones will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call him. Be angry and do not sin on your bed. Reflect in your heart and be still. Offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord. So there's a couple things that are a part of this, uh, this appeal that we um, will learn. First of all, when I say, in my translation it says, how long exalted ones? Exalted ones implying that these are significant men. These are people who are, have a high position in the kingdom. The reason why I believe that that's a better translation just than sons of men is because in the Hebrew it is Benai-ish versus Benai-Adam. Benai-Adam would just be men. It's more of a common term for individuals, whereas Benai-ish is actually more in line with the phrase significant men. So these were people of influence who were insulting him. They, these were people of influence that were maligning him. In the context, it probably makes way more sense anyway, if you think about it, because David was the king of Israel. For some fella out in a field farming somewhere in Judah, insulting David and criticizing his reputation, I'm sure that David probably one would never have heard of it, nor would he have been offended that somebody was criticizing his reputation. If they were some peasant in the middle of the countryside, saying something about the local politician. It does make way more sense that this would have been significant people in the court, significant people in the kingdom, people with great influence over other people. That's why some scholars think that this might be connected to the previous psalm because maybe there were some significant people on Absalom's side that were criticizing David. But whether that's true or whether this is another period of time in David's life, these were people with some degree of sway 
in the, in the society, there's some degree of people whose opinion mattered to David and whose opinion mattered to other people. And so when they're saying, did you, can you believe that David was doing this? Can you believe that David was saying this? Can you believe that David was? And so they were tearing down his honor and his reputation and he was insulted. And he says, how long is this gonna go on? He appeals to them. Now, whether or not David actually had a conversation with these individuals or whether he just wrote it in this psalm before the Lord and for us to, to benefit from, who knows, whether or not he actually had the conversation with them or not. But regardless, he, he pours his heart out and says, how long is this going to go on? How long are these people going to insult me? He gives us an insight on why it is that these people are behaving the way that they're behaving. In the very next part of verse 2, it says this. He says, how long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? What's he talking about there? He's talking about the fact that these people have two problems, two issues that they have to deal with, two sin issues that are going on in their lives. One that they love what is worth worship, worthless, which is that these guys are idol worshipers. These are people who do not respect and in fact are against the religious convictions that David has. David's striving to live for the Lord, to try to honor the Lord. He is looking forward to worshiping God in the temple or the tabernacle. He's looking forward to offering sacrifices to the Lord. And these people are people who do not respect that at all. The idea that they love what is worth, worthless, I think it's Isaiah that, that, that talks about idol worship as being worshiping worthless gods. And David understands that where these people are spiritually, they're pursuing what is worthless. Likely they are idol worshipers. And so because they aren't where, they, where David is spiritually, where, the, where they're not pursuing God, where they are not people after God's own heart, they have a real issue with David. I want you to think about that for a second. Sometimes when we have our reputations attacked, it's because it comes from people who have an issue with the fact that we know Christ as our Savior and we try to live for God. Think of maybe a situation where you've been where you've been lied about because you've tried to do what's the honest thing to do or the, you've tried to live with integrity in your workplace and people don't like that because it shows, it, it shines a glaring light on the fact that they are not doing that. I've, been, I've had conversations where um, believers have talked to me just about kind of work experiences that they've had where they, in their workplace, have been hardworking They've, they've sought to do what God calls them to do, which is do everything for, for God's glory. So they're working as hard as they can. They're doing as diligent job as they can. They're, they're trying to do it to the, to the best standard that they can because they're trying to honor God. They're trying to be a good worker. And their coworkers are offended and criticize them because their work ethic makes their colleagues look bad. And so then the conversation gets taught going you know, the criticism of that believer gets going. Why? Because that person who doesn't have the same biblical standard, does not have the same godly standard when it comes to work ethic, is offended by the fact that this believer is working hard, and then all of a sudden, the conversation gets going. And the reputation gets torn down, and people get maligned. 
prime example of what David was experiencing here. These people did not worship God. Instead, they loved what was worthless, and so they began to criticize David. Not only that, but they pursued a lie. These people were more interested in believing a lie and pursuing that lie and perpetuating that lie than to be paying attention to the truth. And again, I'm sure that we've seen that more times than we can count, each and every one of us, where we know of somebody who has purposely pursued a lie. We know that what it is that, it's, that, that they're following after isn't true, that the, the statement that they're believing is not accurate, but for whatever reason, they just want to keep on going for it. They, they want to believe that as opposed to believing the actual truth. You lay it out with all the facts and all the details, and they're like, no, not interested in paying attention. I'd rather believe this over here. So often that happens, not just in our lives personally, but just in general terms. I think of the idea of evolution, how it's been so clearly shown where evolution just doesn't hold up under scrutiny, scrutiny, that at least it's not scientific in the sense of observable, testable science, and that it's been shown to be merely a belief system because Nobody was there billions of years ago when that single solid organism sprouted legs and walked. But they don't want to admit that it's a belief. Instead, it's science. And even though you show all the evidence to prove that it's merely a belief system that you're pursuing, people will go, no, I'm not interested in the fact that an almighty God created the universe makes way more sense. I'd rather believe this lie. Happens in general senses. It happens sometimes at a personal level in our lives with other people. But look at what David does. He appeals to his enemies. And verse 3 says, Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call. Now, it's almost like it's a kind of a veiled threat. But he's, he's appealing to his enemies in, in this sense first. He, he says, I just want you to remember that God Almighty has set apart the faithful to himself. So no matter what it is that you say, no matter how you try to malign me, no matter what happens, I'm secure in Christ. I'm secure in the Lord. I know that I'm a faithful follower of God. I know that he set me aside. He set me apart. That he's going to protect me, that he's going to deliver me. And then David says, the Lord will hear me when I call to him. I think David's saying, look, no matter what you guys do to me, I have a God that I'm going to appeal to, that I'm going to cry out to. And he's going to be there for me. Verse 4, though, the next part of the appeal, as he says, reminds them of the fact that the faithful are set apart by God for himself. He says, be angry and do not sin. On your beds, reflect in your hearts and be still. Now, as I was studying this out, the, the phrase be angry can also be translated in Hebrew, tremble. And in some scholars actually believe that this verse should probably be more accurately translated, tremble in awe of God so as not to sin. Now, I understand that this, 
this verse is actually directly quoted by Paul later on in Ephesians, Ephesians 4:26, when he says, be angry and sin not, and don't, do not let the sun go down upon your anger. The Septuagint translates this verse from the Hebrew, be angry and do not sin. And so Paul quotes that Septuagint, Greek Septuagint translation in Ephesians. And so that's why he has, be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. Now, I believe that either one of these translations is great and works. And it's definitely a clear command in Scripture that you and I are to be angry but not sin in our anger. We can do that. There is such thing as righteous indignation. There are times, and I know that you've experienced it, I've experienced it. And sometimes it's a very fine line, but we've experienced it. We've seen sin happen in the life of somebody, or we've seen sin in the world around us, and it infuriates us. Because we know how wrong it is, and it just stirs up this righteous anger in us. Because we hate that sin because of how devastating it is, how nasty it is, how it ruins relationships, how it undermines people's lives. And we go, please God, deal with that. And so there's a time when we can be angry and not sin in our anger. But Paul also is very quick in that section in Ephesians to say, make sure that the sun doesn't go down on your wrath. Make sure that you do not dwell on that wrath. Make sure that that does not fester and become something else. That's Paul's instruction as he quotes this passage. If we look at the context of this passage, though, I really believe that the best translation is actually this statement, tremble in awe of God so as not to sin. Because, Paul, because David is addressing his enemies, and right after that, he talks about them offering a sacrifice for, of righteousness. So I really firmly believe that, that David is gently, graciously instructing his enemies to say, in light of who God is, in light of what you're doing wrong, in light of the fact that God is a holy God who cannot stand sin, and in our sinfulness, there's no way that we could possibly stand in his presence. He's saying, I appeal to you, tremble before God because of your sin and make it right. And so I'm inclined to go with that translation because I think it connects with what David is trying to do in appealing to his enemies. He's saying, friends, countrymen, whoever you are, recognize your sin before a holy God and do something about it. Confess it. Deal with it. He says, on your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. I think the reason why he appeals to that is because I think, honestly, we probably all can appreciate this. Oftentimes, when we're laying our heads down on our pillows, and before we fall asleep, we oftentimes reflect on our day. We oftentimes have things going through our minds. We're kind of analyzing things that we've said. We've analyzed events of the day. It's not uncommon for us as human beings to do that. And I think David understood that, and I think he understood that his enemies probably did that. And his encouragement to them was, when you're reflecting, when you lay your head down to sleep, reflect on where you are, what you've been doing, what you've been saying, and make it right. Do something about that, that sin in your life, the sin that's impacting him. And then he concludes by saying in verse 5, offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust God. I want you to think about David's appeal for a second. 
Yes, David's hurt. Yes, David's cried out to God. Yes, David wants to be vindicated. Yes, David wants this situation resolved. But think about it for a second. David was the king. David had all the power in the kingdom. If David really wanted to, from a human perspective, he probably could have rounded these people up and had them all executed. He probably could have taxed them to death. He probably could have thrown them in prison. He probably could have done what he did with Bathsheba's husband, just stick them on the front lines and let the enemy deal with them. Send them off to a neighboring uh, country that they're at odds with and say, hey, I want you to be my emissary over there, knowing that when they probably deliver a message, they'd just be you know, killed on the spot. David could have done any of those things. But instead, David appeals to them that they confess their sin and get right with God. That's what David does. Because he has a heart for these people. He has a heart for them spiritually. Just like Paul, when he was thinking about those people who were preaching for all the wrong reasons to make his life in prison worse, what does he say in that passage? He says, you know what though? If the gospel's being preached, that's great with me. That's my paraphrase, but that's what he says. He's more worried about the fact that the gospel is going forth than what he's experiencing for trouble because these people are doing it for all the wrong reasons. That's the kind of heart that we need to have for our enemies. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies and do, to do good to those who persecute us, we look at that statement and we think that that's radical, but guess what? That's what David's practicing here. Does he do it every time? No, David makes plenty of mistakes. But in this instance... He's appealing to his enemies to be right with God because he cares for them spiritually. After that, we see the last stanza, and, and, and the last stanza is this, that he puts his trust in God. After he appeals to his enemies and, and, and lays that all out for them, what does he do? He trusts in God. And I'm just gonna say this, his trust in God brings about three things. Assurance, a reminder that we have favor with God, it brings about joy, and it brings about peace. He says this, many are asking, who can show us anything good? And then he says this, let the light of your face, face shine upon us, Lord. I firmly believe that when David says that, that he's reflecting back on something that was said in Numbers to the children of Israel. We sing a, a song that ha that's basically born right out of this blessing, in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26, it says this, May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord be, make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. You know, when the people are asking in the question, who can show us anything good? David says, the Lord's, been, Lord's blessing us. The Lord's offered a blessing. He's announced a blessing on us. He regularly shows us good. He's gracious to us all the time. If you look at uh, John 1, 16 and 17, this is what John says. I've got to get the right place. Got a whole bunch of spots marked here. John 1, 16 and 17. Indeed, we have received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God has showered us with grace upon grace. 
The fact that we got up this morning was God's, a gift of God's grace and mercy. The fact that we have breath in our lungs is a demonstration of God's grace towards us, his goodness to us. James 1, 17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. If anybody asks us the same question, who can show us anything good? Oh, let me tell you about God. I can tell you all, all sorts of good things that God's done. David's no different. We have favor with God. We have assurance. He's got assurance. He says this, I will put, you have put more joy in my heart than they when their grain and new wine abound. He said, it doesn't matter how great the harvest is. It doesn't matter how many material blessings are coming to people. The joy that God gives me, way more than that. And this is in the midst of trial. David says, look at the joy that I've got. And then lastly, he says, I... I will both lay down and sleep in peace for you alone make me to live in safety. He had peace because of his relationship with God. When I thought about that, first two places I thought of was John 14. One through four, it says this, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you, and if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I can have perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. No matter what I'm going through, no matter what trial I'm going through, I can have peace with God when I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Why? Because he's gone and prepared a place for me. And when he comes back, I get to go with him. Can't have any better peace than that. Doesn't matter how tumultuous this life is. I know where I'm going. In John 16, Jesus said this in verse 33. I've told you these things so that you may have peace. You will su have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. We can have peace with God in the midst of any trial as David has shared with us. Let me ask you this question. Have you experienced this kind of maligning? Have you experienced this kind of trouble? How has your response been towards the people that were doing that to you? Were you worried more about God kind of breaking their teeth? You know, the imprecatory prayers? We'll get to that sometime. Or are we more concerned about where they are spiritually? and whether or not they're right with God, whether they even have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Are we more worried about our reputation or are we more worried about whether or not they have faith in Jesus Christ that's gonna save them when their life comes to an end? Maybe sometimes we should maybe stop looking as much on what we're going through and what we're facing from other people and really focusing on, does this person know Jesus or not? I should be praying for them. I should be praying for the fact that they need to trust Christ as their Savior because they need to be saved. Are we experiencing that joy, that peace, that assurance that God longs to give us in the midst of our trial? Are we focusing on God and letting him encourage us and letting him vindicate us instead of us trying to spend more time vindicating ourselves? Let's be encouraged.